Okay, guys. Hi. We're here with Dr. Daniel Lopez. It's so weird to say Dr. Daniel Lopez. Uh, for episode three of De-Shaming. And Dr. Lopez, as I have said in a couple of the posts on Instagram and in real life voice stuff on the podcast, is my awesome therapist. He's a psychologist. Uh, and I have given him written and verbal permission to talk about the things that I have talked to him about in the past. So he's only doing this because I asked him to. That's important to say because anyone who's thinking about going to therapy, I personally think it's fantastic because you can pay someone and you can say anything about anybody and they can't tell anybody unless you give them permission. Okay. Okay. So Dr. Lopez, will you give us a little bio about you? So, um, my educational history is that I uh, started at Trinity University here in San Antonio in 1978. And can I add, he doesn't look that old <laughs> at all. Well, thank you. It's very yeah. flattering. But uh, I started in 78 and I got my undergraduate degree in psychology and sociology. And at that time, Trinity had a master's in clinical psychology. They no longer have that, but uh, it was a very uh, uh, appropriate kind of direction for me to go in. So I, uh, got the master's degree uh, at Trinity, and then one of my mentors at Trinity suggested that I continue on and get my doctorate. So I applied, you know, in a couple different places, and I was accepted at uh, University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Nice. And I went there in 19, uh, let's see, 86, and or 19, let's see, 80, 1984, excuse me, 1984, and I did uh, four years there and got my uh, degree in community clinical psychology and uh, specialized in uh, developmental psychology and neuropsychology. Those were my two specialty areas. And also developed an interest in um, uh, substance abuse and addiction. Um, and, and had you know, some really good experiences working at different placements there in the Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska area. Then I moved back to San Antonio to do my residency at the UT Health Science Center. Oh, I did it there. And uh, uh, th- at that time, the program had placements all around town. And you do different rotations. And so I worked at the state hospital. I worked at uh, Child Guidance Center. I worked at uh, what was the San Antonio Children's Center, uh, the Brady Green Clinic downtown, which is a walk-in psychiatric emergency clinic, um, a number of different locations. And then um, after that, I did a one-year postdoc at uh, a place called uh, San Antonio Children's Center, or now... Now it's Clarity Child Guidance, okay, uh, which okay. is a um, full range of uh, mental health services for children and families. And the following year, I got hired uh, by uh, Clarity, which back then was a San Antonio Children's Center or Southwest Mental Health Center. Okay. And um, I was uh, uh, assigned to do psychological assessments with uh, children at the time. So I did that the first year that I was out and working for them. And then I became a uh, staff psychologist, and I worked with um, children uh, who were severely abused and uh, often uh, wards of the state uh, in the custody of the state. Yeah. Uh, And they were placed there because they couldn't be maintained in foster home kind of uh, living conditions uh, because their difficulties were too uh, significant. And so I got a lot of good experience doing that, and uh, um, I ran a uh, substance abuse uh, treatment center a long-term residential treatment center for women with children called the Integrated Family Treatment Program, also at uh, Southwest Mental Health Center. 
uh, for about five years uh, after that. And uh, then I went into uh, full-time private practice. And I've been doing that since um, full-time, let's see, since um, probably 1998. And prior to that, I did consulting with uh, Baptist Children and Family Services and uh, some other juvenile probation. So I worked, uh, did some consulting with the juvenile probation, that kind of thing. So I've had kind of a range of experiences, but a lot of it has been working with younger people in particular who have had very severe abuse. And uh, my private practice, I, I work more with adults now, but I do see some adolescents still, uh, 12 and older. And it's funny because I did know that you're, you're the broad range or the, what am I looking, what's the word I'm looking for, the specific area was children for you. Yeah. And at first, because a friend of, this is a little background in how I found him, a friend of mine recommended Dr. Lopez to me after I had a really crappy experience with some horrible women that I was working with, not now, but when I first moved to Texas. And when she told me that you were an adolescent, I was like, how the hell is this man going to help me? <laughs> and it took, it took a while. It took a lot of months before I really understood how important that was because my voice in regards to my abuse was very childlike. Mm. So it was perfect. I don't think I've ever told you this, no, but it was perfect to have that pairing of someone who specializes in children because I had never expressed all the abuse. I'd never gone to therapy fully for all the abuse. So it felt like when it was coming out, it was coming out from the little kid in me, but being said by the adult in me, it was super confusing, mm -hmm. like super confusing. So when I think I made that correlation within the first year. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. And another really funny story about the first few times I saw you, because you didn't say much. <laughs> I think I've said this to you, but I was like, paying this man for him. I'm just sitting here like rambling on, which isn't difficult for me. I can ramble on. But what I realized, I came to realize soon, it was in the first year or two, because I think I really pushed buttons the first year. I canceled a lot to see if you would get rid of me. Lots of just, not consciously, I was subconsciously trying to see if, just like everybody in the past, you would abandon me too. But I think I, it, I needed to be the one talking so that I could find my voice. Mm -hmm. Well, and that makes sense to me. I mean, I think whether we're talking about any kind of sexual abuse or other kind of abuse history, right. uh, or, or even just day-to-day uh, -day, um, complicated relationship challenges, that sort of thing, you know, I think people really need a space to be able to tell their story. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I learned uh, that you know some really uh, important people in my life taught me is that uh, it was so important to create the space and not take it over, not impose my own frame onto your experience or onto other people's experiences, to allow them to kind of shape the experience to, to a large degree, I like especially that. early on, you know, because um, uh, uh, people need space. People need that, that, uh, that space to be able to talk about their experience without intrusion. You know? Right. And uh, I guess uh, as an aside... And this is maybe more psychological. I think um, uh, you had mentioned, uh, you know, kind of pushing buttons and things like that. One of the things that I really believe, it's, it's very, very important to respect people's defenses, you know, to kind of yeah. not push people beyond where they're ready to be. 
And sometimes people need to, to take a break or step back from therapy or, you know, visit a little bit and, and establish some trust and just know that they can come back at some point. And, and uh, that's really, really important to me that uh, uh, I not kind of push you or push anybody to be in a place where they're uh, unable to be at, at that moment. Well, you did a great job of it. I'm telling you, like I think, and and I wasn't aware that you were aware because I wasn't fully aware of what I was doing because it was just so, it was just so much that I wasn't sure at first that I wanted to dive in. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was how many would you say percentage, if you could mm-hmm. narrow it down, mm-hmm. of your the children that you've worked with were victims of incest. Okay. So in uh, in the residential treatment setting, and again, I, I should kind of clarify a little bit to help with that sure, sure. description. So uh, um, there were different subgroups of, of children that I worked with and adolescents uh, at, at uh, Southwest Mental Health Center. The, uh, the group that I worked uh, most directly with um, that had sexual abuse kinds of experiences was a group that was... Uh, Placed there by Child Protective Services, so they these were children that were often removed from their homes, uh, and they had been placed in foster homes. Many of them had been multiple placements and multiple fam- foster home placements, uh, that kind of thing. Families, um, but their behavior was so uh, difficult to manage, or so uh, uh, self-destructive, or and or other destructive that they needed to have uh, the safety and the containment of some kind of. Uh, long-term holding environment, which is really what residential treatment is. And so in that population, uh, I, I don't have a specific number, but I would say the, the, the young people that I saw, it was probably close to 60 to 70 percent, or maybe more, maybe, you know, uh-huh. uh, were uh, victims of, of incest. And uh, uh, many of them had, you know, multiple abusive experiences, often by different people, not just a family member. It could be uh, a family member, could be a friend of a family member. Um, uh, that was not unusual at all. And, and to also mention the, um, the long-term residential uh, substance abuse treatment program for women uh, who were uh, dealing with multiple addictions and had children, the integrated family treatment program, the number of women in that program who had uh, traumatic sexual experiences, many of them incest, but uh, not all, was probably close to 95%. I mean, it was almost every woman who was in that program had experienced some kind of very significant sexual trauma. And, uh, and that's not unusual. That, that's consistent with um, substance abuse and, and addiction treatment centers all around the United States. So uh, that there's a very high frequency of sexual abuse uh, sexual trauma in, in, uh, in men and women who uh, uh, deal with addictions. So I totally, because I didn't, well, you know this, we've talked about mm-hmm. this in the past, but for you guys, I, my addiction is food, and it's real. Mm-hmm. It is legit. Yeah. And so I can totally, and there is substance mm-hmm. abuse in my family of other members who have been sexually assaulted or yeah. suffered incest abuse. Um, so I could totally see the correlation because you want to numb it. Like, yeah. you don't want to feel, it's a lot to feel yeah. all of that. And incest wasn't even talked about, to my recollection, it out loud in the world, and it still isn't. I still get people who are like, holy shnikes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
until like the 80s or 90, like openly talked about. So just imagine growing up before that, or even in the 50s and 60s, when nobody talked about any of it. I can't even fathom how much you would need to numb all of that. So I'm grateful that that pivot has come now in my lifetime. And Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I guess I would say that it's still... You know, to some degree, it's still a taboo term. Oh, I mean, sure. You, you hear people using other words, but sexual they don't say thought, sexual, sexual fears. Right. And I don't want to diminish any of that because I've certainly experienced that as well. Mm-hmm. But it is, I think, it's important to say the word because mm-hmm. of the dynamic of the family and the things that you miss out on. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the fundamental basic things you're supposed to learn from your tribe mm-hmm. to take out into the world. And if that isn't safe. Yeah. I mean, well, I think it's complicated too. I mean, I, I think it can be not always, but it, it can be much more complicated to manage the uh, the different um, interactions and relationship dynamics that are present within a family. Because a person who's been traumatized within a family who has experienced incest also has many uh, interactions with the the perpetrator, for example or the perpetrators, uh, that may not be, um, so that may not be abusive. That may not be. Right. Right. Uh, no. Yeah. You know, so it's very, very complicated and layered. There are other dynamics within the family. If it's somebody outside of the family, it can, uh, take on a different kind of, uh, course, you know, the, the, the symptoms and the treatment can be a little bit different that way. So, so how has society changed in, your experience, especially being in this field, their view towards sexual assault and incest since you started out? Well, so I I started uh, working with young people probably and and with adults in my training in Nebraska, uh, probably in, uh, again, in the mid-80s, you know, and at that time, people were talking about sexual trauma and sexual abuse and incest incest to some degree. but it hadn't it hadn't really gotten the the kind of attention that it uh, has now. I mean, I think the Me Too movement is part of that. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot more. Um, I would say like validation, validating experience yeah. from our culture pr- presently than there has been in the past. And I think it's grown probably since the '80s. I think uh, you know some of it were prominent. Um, Abuse, uh, abusive relationships that were uh, in the public eye, like Anita Hill, for yes. example, with the Supreme Court Justice Clarence uh, Thomas. That hearing, you know, that really put a lot of attention on uh, um, inappropriate misuse of relationship in a sexual way, and that that really had, you know, I think that was one that really started one experience that really started a lot of conversation. It did, yeah. And uh, and I think really empowered women and, and men to, to start speaking up and to start um, um, challenging some of the perceptions about what uh, sexual abuse is or incest is. You know. it's, it's a shame. I'm grateful to Anita Hill for being so brave, especially then, because mm-hmm. she certainly didn't get the outpouring of support no. that we have now, yeah. that we've seen since Trump mm-hmm. and his abuses have been in office and been in the public eye. Right. Um, and also, I think one of the biggest people for me was Oprah. 
Oh, when I Absolutely. heard Absolutely. her talk, I can remember it. it's going to make me tear up. Yeah. I'm so used to crying in this room. It's so weird. Yeah. In a good way. I like to come here and cry. It's good for me. Um, but when I heard her on the television talking about what her uncles did to her, I mean, that was just such a... Because I didn't, I didn't grow up in a climate that I knew it was wrong, what was happening to me. And that was such a pivotal moment to hear someone stand up on a television and not just say that she had been hurt, but that she had been hurt by a family member. Yes, yes. No, Oprah has done uh, so much to uh, increase public awareness and to, to encourage people to seek help yeah. and to get better, to heal from uh, abuse, from incest, from sexual abuse, from other kinds of trauma. Uh, and, and, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking, I, I hadn't prepared for that, but there are other celebrities that have come forward and have acknowledged their own sexual abuse. Carlos Santana is another example yes. of a musician. Which is huge uh, for a man. Yeah, huge for a man to come forward and say, you know, I've been sexually abused. Big, big step. Huge stigma yeah. attached mm-hmm. to that for a man, mm-hmm. which has always, I mean, I know there's, but it always saddens me because as a woman, at least I can be looked at as a victim. Mm-hmm. I feel like with men, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's this stigma as if you had to have wanted it. You had to have, you know, because men have an outward physical reaction mm-hmm. to a, any kind of sexual stimulation. Yeah, and, I, and you know, it's interesting. I've worked a lot with, with teenage boys who have been sexually abused by, by male perpetrators. Uh, and I've worked a lot with teenage, uh, you know, kind of adolescent girls who have also had sexual abuse experiences within the family and outside of the family as well. And uh, it, it's interesting to me. I, I think boys are more reluctant to tell adults. I don't know how, um, how much that matches up with the research, but in my clinical experience, uh, the boys that I've seen who have had sexual abuse, uh, they were, uh, their, their behavior was uh, really what informed the adults around them that they needed to have some kind of intervention. And then eventually it was discovered that uh, they had had sexual abuse histories that were significant. And I think there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of, um, for, for men, there's a lot of homophobia. Yeah. You know, uh, you know if, if a young man is sort of anxious or worried or concerned about their sexuality, uh, sometimes that becomes an issue. It kind of complicates their telling of the story. You know, um, I, I do think both boys and girls, and men and women, uh, are, are blamed and, and sort of uh, told that they're responsible for the sexual abuse. Um, you know, maybe equally or, you know, I don't know right. if there's too much of a differentiation there. Uh, and I do think that they blame themselves, boys and girls, you know, oh, I uh, do. growing up, blame themselves. I mean, I don't as much as I used to, but there's still that, mm-hmm. it's like an echo of, well, maybe that was my fault. Right. It's not right. true. I yeah. know that now, but it's like that, mm-hmm. so beat into my head for so long. Yeah. And I'm sure many other people, I wanted you to talk about the the importance, if you don't mind, of therapy yeah. and and how important it is I really hope that the that <laughs> so there's a um I don't know it's either an ambulance or a police car in the background yeah. and I'm keeping it a hundred that's we're gonna keep that in there I like that so because this is important this is an emergency that we started talking about incest so I like that in there so pardon the interruption guys okay 
So the importance of therapy and what it, how, if you were talking to someone who was considering therapy, how would you explain it to them and the benefits of it, but also the pitfalls of it too? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I mean, I, I think one of the um, beliefs that I've come to develop over time is that secrets keep us sick. You know, that, that, uh, the things that we often feel we need to hide from others that we're ashamed about or that we feel guilty about, even if it's inappropriate guilt, uh, that those kinds of, of uh, experiences kind of lead us to having significant problems with ourselves and with others. And so, uh, and, and unfortunately, there are not a lot of places where we can go and feel safe and feel a, a sense of trust and feel like the boundaries with other people are, are clear enough that we can talk about these experiences without being, you know, uh, further shamed or humiliated or uh, without uh, having control over that process. Right. You know? And I think that's one thing that, that is really, really important with therapy is it gives people, uh, again, that space to kind of talk about uh, things that are uh, incredibly uh, difficult to talk about, things that, that cause great shame that they can't talk about with a friend or family member or um, a co-worker uh, because of their own uh, relationship, their own experience of that relationship. and um, So therapy is very, very helpful with that. Um, I had uh, touched on the, the notion of uh, establishing trust, and, and really um, that's one of the fundamental um, interpersonal uh, relationship capacities that is damaged by incest in particular, yeah. but also by other forms of, of abuse that people learn uh, not to trust others. And therapy is really a place to start uh, to learn to trust again. And, um, and you know, with, with a therapist who is uh, respectful and very aware of boundaries and doesn't push people to uh, uh, talk about things that they're not ready to talk about, that, that kind of thing. Their respects are boundaries, their defenses. Um, I think uh, they start to heal. They start to develop trust. And, and they also learn that they can talk about anything and it's not going to overwhelm the therapist. I think that's yeah. important too because sometimes um, if we've had some kind of very, very difficult trauma and, and we, just talking about it makes us very uh, scared or very angry or uh, incredibly anxious, and we try and share that with somebody else. A lot of times people in our lives are not equipped, uh, psychologically minded enough, or just too close to us in order to be able to contain the emotion, to, to hold that emotion and not react to it. And, uh, I, and I don't think that's a terrible thing. I think you know people just get overwhelmed sometimes. And so uh, as clinicians, one of the things that we're taught to do is to really hold the emotion and not react to it, and not uh, react out of our own defenses, you know, uh, hopefully to, again, to create that environment where a person can feel safe and, and can really explore their own experiences, their own emotion, their own uh, trauma, uh, and learn that, uh, that it's not going to, it's, it's not going to destroy them, it's not going to overwhelm them to talk about it, to have memories or thoughts that are difficult, that they can work through that too. You know, so. And I, I have to say that that, it really is um, I'm going to get all teared up, but it's one of the best things that I've learned here is that um, 
I can trust somebody. And it isn't about paying you, mm-hmm. you know, like I, you know, it was always that, well, I, he, I trust him because I pay him the first couple of years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it really was that, no, I trust him because he does care about my mental health. Mm-hmm. He does care about me getting over the things that I experienced in my childhood. And it really has helped my relationships in my life to be able to come in here and, and lay things on you. And I really would look for reactions. Yeah. I would look for reactions of disgust because I notice everything. Right. And I yeah. really would look for it. Like it, especially in the beginning, I was looking for you to um, validate my feeling that it was my fault. And that didn't happen. Even when I would come in and talk about the most shameful things mm-hmm. for me, it never happened, and it. I had experienced that in my friendships, you know, um, but I've even had friends say, I can't do this right now, or and I understand that now. It is a lot. Mm-hmm. If you haven't lived through anything like that, yeah. it is a lot to hear that someone is that hurt by their family or someone is that hurt by anybody, but it really, that has been the best part is that I've been able to trust people it's a process because mm-hmm. my abuse was so severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really do, I have opened up so much since I started therapy. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, because I still have nightmares, but not like I used to. I remember even in my nightmares, I would want to be in this room. Mm-hmm. I would picture yeah. like crawling into the couch yeah. to be safe. Like that was my safe space. And that's huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, is huge. It just is. And mm-hmm. I attribute that to your clear boundaries and you net, I mean, you're mm-hmm. so, it's the most clear boundary mm-hmm. relationship I have in my life. And I'm very grateful for that because mm-hmm. I know people who've been to therapists and it isn't that case mm-hmm. that it, it does become about a friendship or a, and that would just, that dual relationship wouldn't serve me mm-hmm. when it wouldn't serve you right. in this so I'm grateful for that. Um, the other thing that I, the biggest thing you ever said to me, and I still, it still rings through my head. I, one of my Lopez-isms mm-hmm. is one of the first sessions we had together. You said to me, not everybody's all bad. Right. Can you elaborate? Because I hated that phrase. I wanted to punch you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> I was pissed. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, because these people hurt me so badly. How can I ever be happy about any memory I had with them? Mm-hmm. Which would negate my whole childhood. Right. right. You know, like, can you explain that a little more? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll try. I, mean, I get it now. I get yeah, it now. Yeah, like, yeah. I understand that yeah. not every part of my abusers, it's, it's not all bad. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a controversial thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. I know this is going to piss some people off, but I think it's mm-hmm. important because it has really helped me. Mm-hmm. That part of it has helped me to salvage memories yeah. Yeah, that yeah. I deserve. You bet. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a really, really important um, principle uh, in, in any kind of therapy, really, is to kind of help us to understand that uh, we're all human and that we all have, you know, positive characteristics and negative characteristics. And uh, one of the things that I think is is a challenge is when we um, 
see others as all bad or as all good. That's that's part of the challenge. Is that uh, if we have that way of sort of organizing our experiences with other people, it's a setup. You know, if we see people as all bad or all good, then we can't really have a real relationship with anyone because no one is all good or all bad. You know, right. even even really really good people can do really really shitty things, really right. bad things. You know, right. um, because they're human too. And and the flip side of that is, you know, some some people who are really uh, doing some horrible horrible things do have some positive characteristics generally you know it's probably a matter of degree right exactly (laughs) yeah and um and i do think it's important uh, too because it helps us to to think a little bit more about our the range of emotional experiences that can be very confusing if we only if we only see the world in black and white you know all good or all bad then our feelings have to be all good or all bad and and we're much more complicated than you know, we, we have a range of emotion over and around any uh, interaction or, you know, getting coffee at the Starbucks <laughs> or whatever. You know, you might have a range of feelings going up to the counter. And, and that's normal. Right. That's, that's healthy to have that range. But, uh, but that has to grow. And I think, again, it's developmentally, we organize the world in all good, all bad, black and white. And we have to grow into a more uh, new, nuanced is, is maybe even too much, just into a fuller range of uh, uh, understanding the world emotionally and relationally, I guess. It's not, I feel like my view isn't so myopic. Yeah. That it's more like it's, like the picture is opened Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Like I don't look at people as good or bad. Like when you do one wrong thing, because I, in the past, I just let go of friendships when one wrong thing happened, like, because I don't want to deal with it. Like, I don't, you know, because I don't, you're going to hurt me again. Right. Is how I viewed it. And well, yes, yes. Go ahead. Do you see that so, a lot, yeah. though? No, yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, along those lines, it kind of gets back to the whole thing that we started with earlier uh, around trust. Yeah. You know, trust is the same way. Um, uh, you know, we don't want to fully trust somebody until we really get to know them. Right. And we don't want to fully distrust someone with, you know, one little shred of evidence, you know. Right. You know, because uh, it, it, it does affect our relationship. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it's better to think about those things as, as gradations, you know, and as something that develops over time, you know. Uh, I, I always think it's problematic when I have worked with people in the past and they establish trust immediately. You know, it's too soon. It's, it's a problem. You know, yeah. uh, people need to grow into their relationships and, and they need to learn this is somebody that is trustworthy or this is somebody that isn't trustworthy. Right. Or even more than that, this is somebody that I can trust in this kind of situation or with this kind of information. But, you know, I'm not going to share this kind of information with them. I don't know that that's, you know, yeah. you, you yeah. have to make oh, yeah, those, yeah. those finer distinctions in our in relationships. And and I think that that's something that, that can grow out of... Um, uh, moving away from a black and white kind of, uh, you know, all or nothing, all good or all bad way of looking at the world, you know. Right. Um, now, I will say this. I do think it's easier for people to divide the world into good and bad, and, yeah. you know, evil and godly or whatever. I mean, I think that's right. a, 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 an easier approach. Uh, it just doesn't match up with reality. No, and it, w- it wasn't healthy because that's how I was living my life. And it, I wasn't able to... One, I wasn't able to, to develop intimate relationships 
with men because I'm heterosexual. I haven't mm-hmm. talked about my sexuality on here. Um, and so I wasn't able to do that. It, in most of the relationships, I've been in three long-term that we've talked about. It was all about what they wanted, yeah. what they needed, not it wasn't their fault. Yeah. That's how I set it up because it was easier that way. I don't have to open myself up to you really. Mm-hmm. I don't have to get close to you. You don't have to see all my shit. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't have to show you all my warts. Mm-hmm. And through the therapy and being able to to not make it a broader mm-hmm. color palette, mm-hmm. even dating is easier. I mean, it's still you know dating, but yeah. I'm me. Mm-hmm. I'm not anybody else. I'm not what that person might want me to be. I'm me. Well, and so that that really is another important feature of not seeing the world in black and white is I think uh, that a person uh, can move away from seeing themselves as all bad. Right. And can be more accepting of these are some of the things that I'm limited by. These are some of the things that I'm really good about. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's probably where it's even more important is that kind of self-acceptance that, yeah, I have limitations, but I also have some really important strengths. And in my relationships, you know, I, I'm this is who I am. And being more accepting gives you a more real relationship and, and the possibility of a much healthier, a much better relationship. You know, you know I never so. thought about it like that. But when I first walked in here, when we first started our working together, I really saw myself as just the fat chick who'd been molested. Mm-hmm. Like those two yeah. things yeah. defined me. Mm-hmm. And it it's true. I don't see myself, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. I am the fat chick. And yes, I have been molested. Yeah. But I'm so much more now, and I'm able to see it through therapy. I don't think, had I not come here, because I really think that everything is a per- there's a reason to everything. And I think that one of the reasons I came to Texas was to find my voice. And through working with uh, kids on the autism spectrum to finding you, as much as I'm not comfortable in Texas as a liberal, that's been the best part of it. And it really has opened up so much more of me. Mm-hmm. I'm rambling, but my brain is going all over the place right now. Yeah. Well, so, so no, that, and you know, one thing that I hear in that Pamela is that, uh, um, when you, when you first started out, and I think this is true for a lot of people, a lot of victims of incest, they are victims of oh, incest. Yeah. You know, somebody has done something really terrible or have done terrible things to violate their trust and their physicality and their emotional well-being and their safety and all kinds of things. Uh, And and so often uh, in the beginning, people really do identify as victims. And so they take on the identity. I'm I'm the fat chick, you know. Right, right. Who's been, I'm the the sexual abuse incest victim. Right, exactly. And uh, I think as a person grows beyond that, as they start working out, you know, what's happened to them and, and have a place to unpack some of their experiences and, and to broaden their perspective and their, their experience, their, their perception of what happened uh, to them, then uh, they can still say, I am a person who's overweight or who's, uh, you know, the fat you're, you're, I'm, right. I'm, a, I'm a person who's fat. Right. And I am a person who has had, uh, who has experienced incest. Right. And other sexual trauma. But it doesn't define me. Those things don't necessarily define who I am. Not know? at all anymore. Yeah. They really don't. Now I'm, I'm able to see, mm-hmm. you know, the 
I'm a kick-ass therapist. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a million different things mm-hmm. other than those two things right, right. that have caged me most of my life. So you've moved from being a victim, and I know we've talked about this, from being a victim to being a survivor of abuse to being a thriver. I am so thriving. You know? yeah. Yeah. Can you explain that? That was one of the things. I can. I've got some notes because oh, I yes. thought it would be helpful. You're so to, good, to Dr. Lopez. Yeah, you bet. No. Well, I, I just want to be prepared and have something <laughs> to offer. So... Uh, so uh, I, I got this actually off a website. Um, let's see. Well, it's an online library. Okay. Uh, com. So oh, nice. I was just interested in, you know, how others de- define those characteristics. And so uh, the, the victim stage is uh, described as the first stage of healing. Uh, in this stage, it's important for you to face the reality of the bad or unfortunate thing or things that have happened. You can then acknowledge the negative feelings and emotions that might be around grief, anger, sadness, rage, disappointment, frustration, despair, hopelessness, helplessness, all of those things, which... Yeah, all of it. Yeah, all, I was stuck all in that for a things. long yeah, time. Absolutely. You can allow yourself to experience these feelings and emotions and to, exper- and to express them. It's a really important part of healing to be able to, to go through all of that, to work on all of that. But in this stage, it's also very important to recognize that it's not your fault. And, and that's a really crucial piece, that it's yeah. not your fault that these things have happened, especially in, in the case of incest, where, you know, often uh, parent-child boundaries have been violated, the protections aren't there, sibling boundaries aren't respected, you know, they're, they're broken. That right, kind of thing that right, so, yeah. Um, so that's really important. And then um, having the courage to tell somebody kind of is an important piece of, of being able to say, you know, I've been victimized. This is something that has happened to me. I, it sort of changes. It breaks down the isolation that a person feels. I'm not alone. That, by the way, is, is a, uh, why it's often good to have an online group or a, a podcast to kind right, of relate right, to. Yeah. Or a group, a support group, to know that these kinds of experiences, even though I feel like it's only happened to me or like nobody could have had it as bad as I've had it, you know, find that other people have had similar experiences, some worse, some less difficult, but, you know, a range. That's right, really, yeah. really important. And then as soon as, I like the way this kind of ends this section, it says as soon as the victim stage has been acknowledged and understood, you can move on to the next stage, which is the survivor stage. And in the survivor stage, it says it begins when you understand you've lived beyond the traumatic or the highly stressful experiences. You've lived beyond it. Um, this stage reinforces the fact that it happened in the past. And that means there has to be, you know, kind of a beginning and an end to it. Right. That's not always the case. Sometimes people are being re-victimized, and that's other work that has to happen. Oh, yeah. You know, those boundaries need to be strengthened and changed. Um, the question may be asked, how did I survive it? Uh, how did I do it? What strengths and resources did I use? How did I get through that? You know, what are my capacities? Uh, acknowledgement of the survivorhood involves developing an inventory of positive personality characteristics, starting to know, you know, who you are uh, beyond the, the abuse. Yeah. Identifying and appreciating internal strengths, uh, identifying external re- uh, resources and relationships that are, are healing or supportive. Uh, at this stage, you'll regain the ability to function in everyday life, work, uh, uh, recreation, household chores, time with friends, that kind of thing. And then I like this. It says, once you've acknowledged that you've survived, uh, and the skills, strengths, qualities, and resources that got you to survive and to eventual well-being, 
you move on to thriving. So once you kind of identify those things, then you can thrive. And thriving is to live to the full uh, and per- to live a full and most purposeful and meaningful life as possible. Yes, that's you know, me, maybe. To, yeah, <laughs> maybe I should say that again. to live to live to the fullest and to live as purposefully and as meaningfully as possible. That's a better way. Maybe uh, that's me. Yeah. I should have the t. That should be on my yeah. T-shirt. So that's thriving. Yeah. You know. I'm so and, there. Uh, so yeah. I mean, and I want to add that it doesn't mean that I don't still have nightmares sometimes. It doesn't mean that I don't still come to therapy. I want to come the rest of my life if I can. Um, but but I'm I'm living now. I'm not relooping my past all the time. And that's something else. I think that's really important. Uh, that's something I didn't mention is that again when you're uh, when you're in the thriving stage, if you want to call it that, then a person really is much more in the now. Yeah. They really are living in the present. I think with abuse or any kind of trauma, one of the challenges is that we're often sort of stuck there. Yeah. And we're thinking about it constantly. We can't think about what's happening right now, even for a moment. You know, I mean, literally for a moment. Uh, you know, we're, we're worried about the future all the time. But this can happen sometimes. This can happen again and again and again. So we're, we're not able to be... Uh, happy and healthy in the present. And I, I think so. that's where I was stuck for a long time, yeah. is antis- constantly still playing the chess game yeah. of anticipating, not that you know my abusers from my childhood were going to come back, but that it, mm-hmm. subconsciously I was always on the alert for yeah. someone to hurt me, yeah. whether I was aware of it, but it was that fight or flight well, and, and feeling I might, all the time. And I might say with that panel, one thing that, that I know we've touched on and it's very, very true with uh, people who have been traumatized uh, in any way, is that uh, people develop a um, hypervigilance. They're constantly scanning. You had mentioned earlier that you know you were looking for the smallest sign of disgust or or something on my face, you know, right. some kind of reaction. Right. And that's a survival skill. That's a skill, and it's a way that you uh, got through childhood. It's a way that you learned to function. And hopefully to minimize some of the more disastrous kinds of things. Yeah. As did. much as you could have. Yeah. And and uh, I think it's also a function of being on, on the fight or flight, hyper alert, hyper aroused, uh, physiological state all the time. People get stuck there. And, yeah. And People I feel like I've stuck been there. stuck there most of I really do. Yeah. Like, And I'm just now learning to, that I don't have to react mm-hmm. and I'm safe I'm safe yeah. I say that to myself daily yeah I'm yeah. safe great nobody's ever gonna mess with me again I'll mm-hmm. kill them <laughs> okay well um, I think the uh, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about was um, what and I know this is going to be a broad answer yeah but where can someone if if you Anyone out there wants to find therapy? So great, great question. I you were so prepared, Doctor Lopez. I love it. <laughs> so I I came across a resource, and actually I, I had did not know about this until I got online, and it's uh, and I probably should have. It's called Rain R A I N N dot org. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the website that I went to is centers c e n t e r s dot rain r a i n n dot org. And they actually have a search tool within the website. Uh, And this is uh, the National Sexual Assault Hotline Affiliate Organizations are tied into this. So you can pick a state or you can use a zip code. 
and you can find uh, service providers. You can find resources in the areas that are near you. And uh, one of the things that it lists, it says that you can find resources, including individual counseling, group counseling or support groups, medical attention. This is important to legal and criminal justice center or system advocacy, because sometimes people are needing somebody to advocate for them with them in the legal system. Uh, crime victim assistance, advocacy, community education, professional education, casework and practical assistance, emergency shelters in some cases. People need to uh, uh, find safety, and yeah. that's good. And also volunteer opportunities. So uh, this particular resource sounds, and I looked at a couple, and, and it, it's a good, it's like a clearinghouse, I guess. Yeah, Rain is pretty awesome. Yeah, so. I don't think I shared this with you. I just went through the application process with Rain. Fantastic. To be one of their speakers. No, you didn't. And they accepted fantastic. me. Yay! Fantastic. So they'll fantastic. call me to speak at schools here. Okay. And uh, any other organization that wants some a survivor to. Fantastic. That's gonna be huge That's if fantastic. I do that. Fantastic. So and well, also, I might say I want to say that I also think your podcast. Yeah. And I, you, you know, I know that you came to that on your own volition, right? You, this is something you came up with. Yeah. Volunteering that kind of thing. To me, those are indications that you're in the thriving sort of zone or, yeah. you know, stage. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. kind of like in, in the recovery world, the 12-step recovery world. One of the things that's so important is that a person who has a lot of sobriety or chemical-free living and, and they have, are, they've adopted a healthy life, they give back to others who are struggling. And one of the ways they do it is to reach out and share their experience and their, their story, their hope. Yeah, I have a lot of hope. hope. I have yeah. a lot of hope. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Lopez. Well, okay, so guys, I have a link to Rain on the Deshaming webpage, and we're going to thank Dr. Daniel Lopez. It's so (laughs) weird to say for um, speaking with us today. I'm going to ask if we could do this again in the future because I have a couple of other bigger topics. Mm -hmm. This one was kind of broad spectrum. Um, And I hope this helps you guys. Hope it helps all of you on your path to deshaming. And you, as always, can email me at iamdshaming at gmail.com. Thank you, guys. Thanks.